0: How does a man like Saul of Tarsus, who once described himself as a blasphemer, a persecutor, a violent aggressor, one who persecuted this way, as he called it, which is the name of the uh, early name for for the Christians, persecuted this way to death, binding them and putting them both men and women into prison, doing many things hostile to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. Not only did I lock up many of the saints in prisons, having received authority from the chief priests, but also when they were being put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I was punished. I punished them often, and the synagogues who tried to force them to blaspheme. And being furiously enraged at them, I kept pursuing them in even the the foreign cities. How does a man like this, a man like uh, uh, Saul of Tarsus, suddenly become the Apostle Paul? No longer a hater of Christ, no longer a hater of Christ's people, but now a lover of Christ Mm -hmm. and a lover of Christ's people, and the foremost proclaimer of the gospel to the Gentile world. How can a group of people who were once described as fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, effeminate, homosexuals, thieves, covetous, drunkards, revilers, swindlers, be addressed as the church of God in Corinth, as those who have been sanctified in Jesus Christ, saints by calling, as the apostle Paul does in First Corinthians chapter 1? Paul immediately gives the answer to that question when he says they were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. The point is that justified people who are declared by God himself no longer guilty of their sin and positively righteous in Christ, listen, they are different from who they used to be. That's it. They're different from who they used to be. Because salvation is not just something you believe. Salvation has a practical effect on those who are saved. Salvation changed the Corinthians. Salvation changed the man Saul of Tarsus salvation changed and completely transformed uh, the life of john newton and, and this is what we're looking at at this portion of scripture what it looks like to be saved what it looks like to be justified the, the transformational life of righteousness that what that looks like in the believer's life a life that god himself through christ has provided for his children it's a life of obedience a life of obedience to the word and it's a life lived in the power of Uh, and in the person of the holy spirit now last time when we were in this portion of scripture we were looking at what i termed the doctrine of our union with christ the fact chapter five we used to be identified with adam now no longer right because of our union with christ we're forever identified with christ so justification not only breaks the relationship we once had with adam it brings us into full union with the savior because once we're justified, we're not just saved. Or once we're justified, we're saved. But we're but it's not just a forensic declaration. It's just not some uh, statement. It's a reality. It's a reality, period. Once we're justified, there's a transformation of life. We're no longer who we used to be in Adam. But now we're new creations in Christ. And we're going to continually, progressively look more and more like Christ. And if that's not a reality in your life then very simply, you're not saved. If you're not looking more and more like Christ, then you're not saved. Somebody who professes faith in Christ, yet persistently disregards the lordship of Christ, disregards Christ's standards of righteousness, one who continually disobediently walks in habitual patterns of sin, who lives a life that is basically marked by an absence of holiness, That person has no legitimate claim on Christ. That person has no legitimate claim on the Savior or on salvation. Now, I'm not saying that a person who claims to be saved is sinless. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying they're sinlessly perfect. That doesn't happen until we're glorified. It doesn't happen until we're glorified, until we're either with the Lord, either through death or through the rapture. But a professed believer who habitually walks in a pattern of righteousness In and unholiness in time has no legitimate claim to salvation because there is an inseparable link between justification and sanctification. As a salvation component, there's a new life in Christ that God grants to a person who's genuinely saved, who's genuinely justified. There's a new life in Christ that God grants. To the person of the holy spirit to that person that's why john that's why john newton was different that's why saul of tarsus became the apostle paul that's why in the corinthian church such were some of you they left those lifestyles such as the way it is and anybody who comes into contact a saving contact with the savior if there's no transformation of life if there's no holiness if there's not a a new life If there's not a life that has been radically changed, transformed by righteousness, that person has no legitimate claim to salvation. Now again, I'm going to say it again. I did not say sinlessly perfect. I did not say never sins, because we all sin. I'll talk about that in a moment. But as a habit of life, a pattern of life, if there's not a transformation, there's no true salvation. I, I used to hear it all the time, you know. Little Johnny got saved when he was two, and uh, he grew up, and now he's an adult. He's uh, he just burned down the village. He just raped all the women. He just stole all the money from everybody in the town, uh, and uh, burned it down on the way out. And uh, you know, but I'm thankful he saved. I am I right, brother? Have you heard that? I've heard that a hundred times. That's nonsense. Saved people don't do that. Solitarsis get saved but now he only murders people christians every other week instead of every week right saved people don't do that christ changes people justified people are changed people if there's no transformation of life there's no holiness there's no new life there's no legitimate claim to salvation People who make those kind of claims that they believe in Jesus are just like the people over in the book of James who happen to be demons who claim they believe in Jesus too, right? There's a lot of people who are deceived. I didn't write Matthew chapter 7 that many are going to come unto me, Lord Jesus Christ says, and saying to me, Lord, Lord, did we not? And I said, I don't know about all this casting out demons, performing miracles. All I know is I don't know you, right? There are a lot of people who are deceived. Many people who are deceived in the modern church who claim they believe in Christ but they have been deceived because their life lacks a practical holiness in Christ. Right? At least a desire to do the right thing. Right? We're not talking about what scale, but a desire to do the right thing. A practical holiness that, listen, God, God through Christ demands, but this is even more important, that He provides. He provides it. He provides it through the indwelling person of the Holy Spirit. Because if you're saved, you have the person of the Holy Spirit dwelling in you. You're no longer who you used to be. Right? You're no longer who you used to be, so genuine Christians are no longer who they once were, completely different from the inside out. I pray, I say this verse a thousand times around here. Right, Second Corinthians five seventeen. Therefore, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creature. Right, he's a new creature. He's a new creation. Old things pass away; new things have come. Now, the question at the top of the chapter is what's driving the discussion of the text before us. So, we'll go back up there, chapter six, verse one. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may increase? Now, Paul's critics, or the critics of Paul, are teach that uh, who come along and say, "Look, if you're teaching forgiveness of sin." by grace alone. If you're teaching forgiveness of sin, access to God apart from works, just by grace alone, through faith alone, the person of Jesus Christ alone, you know what? You're going to cause a lot of people to sin, right? You're going to cause more people to sin, right? If we're just saved by grace only, then why not go out and just keep sinning all the more so that God's grace might increase in a person's life? Why not just do evil that good may come? That's what the critic says. And Paul answers that objection in verse two. He says, may it never be. How should we who died to sin still live in it? Paul argues that the idea is unthinkable. He says it's an utter impossibility. It's an utter impossibility that a true believer would have a habitual lifestyle, a habitual pattern of sin in their life, because he says the believer has died to sin. How shall we who die to sin still live in it, right? It's just a straightforward declaration of truth. The person who is saved, genuinely saved, genuinely justified, is alive in Christ, Is has died to sin. Died is a is a phrase that speaks of a past completed action, a fact of history. And nothing, stop and think about it, nothing is more unresponsive than a person who's dead. Can't get a reaction from a corpse. You can caress it, you can command it, you can kick it, but there's still no response. The simple reason is that person is dead. Right? They're dead. They're dead to all external stimuli. And what Paul is saying is that of a true believer, a genuine believer, he is dead to the promptings of sin. He has been freed from that because of Christ. He has been freed because of Christ from the reign and the rule of sin. Sin no longer has a hold on his life, right? It was Adam who drug him down, but it's Christ who's alive and brings him up and gives him life. How should we who died to sin still live in it? And really, it's an utter impossibility, Because the person who has died in Christ has died to sin, therefore if you've died to sin, you can't live in sin. Right? If you've died to sin in Christ, you can't live in sin. Very simple for a genuine believer, Paul is simply saying it's impossible for that person to remain in a constant state of sinfulness. Now stop and again and think about death. It's permanent. right? It's a once for all time event. That person who has died is dead. They no longer live. And the person who is regenerate, the person who is born again, the person who is justified in Christ has died to sin. There he cannot possibly live in sin if he's died to it. I mean, it's not only irrational, it's unbiblical. So to drive the point home, remember last week, Paul gives an illustration, it's verse 3. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? And remember, I told you this verse is an analogy. It's a picture. Paul's using a physical illustration to try to teach a spiritual principle. He's not talking about water. He's not talking about water baptism as a means of salvation. The point of the analogy is to teach us a spiritual truth. And the use of baptism by Paul is a picture, or Paul's use of baptism is to help us understand that just like in baptism, what happens? You, you get in, right? You get immersed into the water. And your union with the water... Completely, thoroughly changes you. It changes you from a state of dryness to a state of wetness. And that's the picture that Paul's trying to put forth here for the believer. That the moment he is saved, that person has been immersed into the person of Jesus Christ. Therefore, that person immersed into the person of Jesus Christ has been completely changed, completely transformed, thoroughly and permanently from one condition to another. Right? With the water, it was from dryness to wetness with Christ, it's from the realm of sin and death, now to the state of grace and life, a complete transformation. So when Paul says at the top of verse 3, do you not know, and he uses that phraseology, he's asking basically, are you people ignorant? And I guess the answer is yeah, because you've got to explain it to them, right? Don't you understand your, your baptism, right? Are you ignorant of the meaning of your baptism? It's a symbol that speaks about a reality that has already occurred in your life. One author writes this, he says, The tragedy is that many mistake the symbol of water baptism as the means of salvation rather than the demonstration of it. To turn the symbol into the reality is to eliminate the reality in which, this case, is salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. What do we teach here about baptism? Do we teach infant baptism? No. Do we teach teach baptism by sprinkling? No. We teach baptism by immersion, and baptism by immersion for the believer. Okay, now let's just do the chronology. When do you get, when do you get baptized? Well, of course, to get saved, right? You know, you go some places and you get a little bit of sprinkling, you get a little bit of saved, you come here, you get a whole lot of, sp- no. We do not, I'm just joking. Don't write that down. Don't write me a letter. Say it's speaking of heresy. Right? We get baptized as a demonstration of the reality of the fact that we're already united with Christ. It's a picture, right? We don't get wet to get saved. We get wet. To demonstrate that we're united in Christ, we're immersed in him, we're completely different. Died into the water, risen to new life because of Jesus Christ. It's a symbol of an inward reality. It's not salvific, right? Now Paul's going to put forth a a second principle here, which is really just an extension of that, that first one. That Christians are identified with Christ, completely immersed into Christ, but they are identified with him specifically in his death and resurrection. So he says, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Verse 4, Therefore we have been buried with him through baptism into death, in order that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. Having been baptized into Christ Jesus, completely immersed into him, completely transformed by our relationship with him, We, the justified ones, because that's the context, we, the justified ones, have been baptized into his death. Therefore, we've been buried with him through baptism into death. Now again, stop and think about the death of Christ, right? It was a historical account, a historical event. Happened at a point in time. A historical fact, and because of our salvation, because of our justification, it speaks about our union with Christ. When did our union with Christ begin? This is phenomenal, if you stop and think about it. When did our union with Christ begin? It began on the cross. That's when we started to become united with him. That's when we started becoming identified with him. When he who knew no sin became our sin bearer. When he who knew no sin became our substitute. Right? And when he died, we died. When he was buried, we were buried. Now, burial is really the ultimate death certificate, if you will. Burial burial is the final proof that death happened. Burial is the event that marks the end of the one who is dead, the end of the life of the one who is dead, the end of existence, right? The end of any activities that that person that he or she uh, would have had in that world they've just left behind, that relationship is now over. They're dead, buried. So when Christ died on the cross, on our behalf, as our substitute, we died with him. He paid our sin debt. He once for all removed us from the realm of Adam and from the dominion of sin. But since death has no power over Christ, he victoriously rose from the grave, and because he rose from the grave, we rise with him. Because Jesus Christ defeated death and returned to life, we, not through our own efforts, but we through the one who paid our sin debt, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we rise When he rose, we rise, and now we rise in Christ, and we walk in newness of life. That's transformation. When did it start? When he took our sin and nailed it to the cross. When he stood in our place, and we by faith believed what he did, he gave us those benefits. He took who we were, buried it, and then when he rose, we rise with him. Does that make sense? And we rise to walk in newness of life. Look what it says, having been baptized into Christ Jesus, we have been baptized into his death, therefore we have been buried with him through baptism into death, in order that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life, newness of life. Now it's not newness in the sense of new in the point of time, but it's newness in the sense of quality, excuse me, it's newness in the sense of character. It's newness in the sense that we used to live lives characterized by sin, But now in Christ, we live lives that are characterized by righteousness and holiness. The natural life that we had before we came to Christ, the natural life that we had when we were in Adam, was a life of sin and death. But now in Christ, there's newness of life. It's a life that's a supernatural life. It's an eternal life. It's a holy life that springs up from the holy source and that being the righteous one, the Lord Jesus Christ himself right? It's a newness of life through the resurrection power of God, the resurrection power of Christ through the power of the glory of God. And again, it's not based on us. It's all based on Christ. Christ transforms people. Your union with Christ transforms and changes you, right? And this new life is something that he gives you, and it's the result of the union with him. It's the result of salvation, right? Uh, it's not that we live, but now Christ lives in us. We used to be in Adam, but now we're in Christ. Christ is in us, and he lives in us. Galatians 2 and 20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. The life which I now live but in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. So Christ is not only the source of our justification, Christ is the source of our sanctification, right? Christ is the source of our holiness, Colossians 2.13, when you were dead in your transgressions and uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven all our transgressions. Ephesians 2.1, you were dead in your trespasses and sins, etc. Verse 4 says, but God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, he made us alive together with him, or together with Christ, right? God makes us alive, dead in Adam, alive in Christ. It's your union with the person of Christ at his death, burial, and resurrection, right? When you are united with him, when you come to saving knowledge of of him, when you come to justification, you're truly saved. You're no longer who you used to be. It's just that simple because of him. So Paul's going to continue this argument. He's going to continue to affirm the truth. Our our union with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection brings an absolutely new life. It inevitably brings a new way of living, verse 5. For if we become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his his resurrection. If we become united with him. Now the if there doesn't mean if in the sense that we use it uh, in, in the English. If like there's a sense, any kind of sense of doubt about the matter. It really means sense. That's really what it means in the Greek, sense. Since we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. So the Apostle Paul is affirming the fact that since we are united with Christ, in his death and his resurrection, because we are united with Christ in his death and resurrection, new life's coming. A new life, a new way of lo- a living will follow. Since we become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. Right? We're, we're united with him. I told you it's a, it's a vital union, a life-giving union, a, an intimate union. Since we become united, since we become united with him in his death certainly we shall be in his resurrection, right? So the point is, there's a we are so vitally connected with the person of Christ, uh, again, that because of his death, because of his resurrection, for those who are true believers, the old life necessarily is gone, and a new, night, a new life necessarily will come forth, has to. A new life is born in Christ. Now, what does it mean here in that little phrase where it says likeness, since we become united with him in the likeness of his death, and certainly we shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. What does that mean, likeness? Well, all that word likeness means is that our death and our resurrection are not identical to the Lord's in every single aspect. Uh, er Everything that happened to him was unique to him because of who he is, who he was, right? Uh, uh, The eternal Son of God. Everything that happened to him, therefore, specifically is unique to him alone. It can never be exactly true of us. Uh, For example, we will never know the, the suffering of Christ, right? how's that because he was the sinless lamb of god when we suffer in this world we're born sinful when we suffer in this world we're probably deserving to get anything that comes our direction not him right there's a distinction between us uh romans 8 3 uh, helps us understand the word likeness we're told that jesus christ came into the world in the likeness of sinful flesh as an offering for sin right there's a there's a resemblance but there's a distinction christ was sinless christ was divine he came in the likeness of sinful flesh. <clears throat> he came uh, in, in something that resembled sinful flesh, but he himself knew no sin. And that's the idea that, that Paul is trying to bring forth here in 6.5. For, for if we become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. So again, the word likeness says what happened to him, to Christ literally and physically, actually happened to him. It's happened to us on a spiritual level. Spiritually, it's true. We died with him but we didn't literally physically <coughs> excuse me, die with him when he died, right? We weren't there, right? We weren't literally physically there on the cross, but spiritually we were. When Adam sinned way back when, right, we were not literally there with him, but we were there, right? We were there spiritually with him. So what he's saying is we're going to never, never completely understand his death, that he died from his standpoint, as one who is literally and physically one who came as Christ did to bear the sin of the world as the sinless substitute, Right? Who bore God's wrath against our sin, but the effects of his death and his resurrection are passed on to us. Right? Because we're united in him spiritually. Does that make sense, I hope? Right? In the likeness. For if we become united with him in the likeness of his death, <coughs> certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Right? Well, what does that whole sentence mean? Well, if you just take it at a whole, notice this. It speaks of something of great certainty, right? Since we have, certainly we shall be also, right? Since we have, certainly we shall, uh, shall also be right certainly we shall be in the likeness of his resurrection means now presently as a present reality something that refers to right this present life again it's a continuation of what he just said back in verse four he says therefore we have been buried with him through baptism and the death so that as christ was raised from the dead to the glory of the father so we too might walk in newness of life right when are we to walk in newness of life tomorrow no right now right the moment you get, you get united with Christ, the moment you're saved, right? When are we to walk in newness of life? You're granted that life immediately in Christ. When are you to walk in it right now? Presently in this world. Right? If we become united with Him in the likeness of His death, right? If you've died with Him, certainly you shall be, uh, you shall also be in the likeness of His resurrection, right? If you've died with Him, you're raised with Him. Right? It's just a continuous action. You take part in His death, you're going to take part in His resurrection. If you take part in his resurrection, then you're going to take part in a new life right now, transformation of life. That's why Paul didn't go on killing Christians. He was changed from the inside out. That's why Newton walked away from his life and and went to a completely different lifestyle, right? Changed from the inside out. Look down at uh, verse 11, Romans uh, 6, verse 11. Even so, consider yourself to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Right? Since you've become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection, right? Since you've died to the reign and to the dominion of sin, or because you've died to that old reign, that old dominion, and because you've been raised by Christ to have a new life, to walk in newness of life, and since you live now in the realm of grace, here it is. Live like it. Live like it. Consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Christ is the head, right? If the head's raised, the entire body's raised. He brings life. Did you know that Jesus is a Savior? That Jesus not only saves us from our sins in some kind of a court case in the distant future, he actually saves us from our sin. He actually transforms our lives, right? Amen? Are you different now than who you used to be? That's what he's saying. You should be if you're genuinely saved. Since we become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Right? The apostle is just saying, look, the Lord's relationship to sin and death has completely changed us who are in him. Right? We are in him. When he rose, we rose. Right? He was dead, he rose to life. In him, we have a new life. Now, one day, what's true on a spiritual level is going to be true on a literal level. One day, we're going to enter into glory. When we enter into glory, we're going to be just like him, right? One day we're going to be spotless, right? We are going to be sinless, faultless, blameless, perfect, glorified. Paul, Philippians 3.20, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we eagerly await for our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into the conformity with his body of glory, or the body of his glory, by the exertion of the power that he has, right? One day we're going to be like him. When we see him, we'll be like him, right? Today we're still in these bodies of flesh, Right? Today we are conscious of the weakness of our flesh, the frailties of our sin and our failure. One, night, one day we know we're going to be like Him. One day we're going to be absolutely changed. One day we're going to be with Him in glory. And that then Paul says that corruptible is going to put on incorruptible. Right? That mortal is going to put on immortality. Uh, 2 Timothy 2, uh, 2 and 11. It's a trustworthy statement. If we died with Him, we'll live with Him. Right? If we endure, we'll reign with Him. Right? Our, our position is guaranteed in Christ. So in Christ, we're under the reign of grace, right? And so powerful is the reign of grace that sin has been defeated in our lives. The devil, uh, hell have been defeated because of Jesus Christ and our union with him. Jesus Christ gives us victory. Now the believer is united with Christ in Christ. Christ is in us, Christ is in the believer. And the believer is already delivered spiritually from that old reign, from the reign of sin, right? The reign of death. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Now look, I want you to know, so I'm jumping ahead of my notes here, but he's not asking you to do anything. Right? You've been delivered and you're going to do this. If you do, He's not telling you to do anything. He's just telling you the truth. He's just telling you the truth, right? He's making statements of fact. Got to think. Statements of fact. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Again, you can't. The believer is dead. Died to sin. Right? The believer died to that own life in Christ that he might be raised to a new life. Therefore, we've been buried with him in baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. Verse 5, for if we become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Right? Then he comes to verse 6 he says th- this, knowing this, knowing that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body, of de- our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. So the first thing the apostle says, in essence, is, look, <laughs> you guys should have gotten this already, right? You should have figured this one out. This should be common knowledge. This should be something that is so obvious and certain amongst believers, knowing this, well, knowing what? Knowing that our old self was crucified with him. Now, do you know that? before I told you tonight. Do you know that? Do do you live your life in light of that truth that your old self was crucified with Christ? Is this something that is absolutely obvious to you and certain about your lifestyle? And again, do you understand what it means when he says, knowing that our old self was crucified with him? Again, it's an essential understanding. Now, what does it mean? Our old self, what does it mean knowing that our old self was crucified? What does old self mean? or I think in some of the translations it says our our old man, right? authorized version King James, New to King James well let me tell you what old man or old self doesn't mean old self here or old man does not refer to our carnal nature to our flesh We, we do battle with our flesh, that's not what he's talking about it's not talking about our lusts and affections neither does old man mean the former in the sense of chronological age, the word old happens to mean something that's completely wore out Something that's useless, something that's only fit for the scrap heap. So, in the entire context of the passage from chapter five, verse twelve, our old self or our old man refers to who we were in Adam. Somebody wrote it like this: "The unregenerate in Adam man." That's what it means. The old self, the old man, is the unregenerate in Adam man. Our old self, our old man, is who we used to be in Adam, who we once were (past tense), but now we're no longer. Right? The Christian was once in Adam, but now the Christian is in Christ. And I want you to put a mark there because we're going to kind of come back. But then I want you to take your Bible and I want to show this to you. Right? I want you to look over the book of Ephesians. Right? Ephesians uh, chapter 4. In verse uh, 22. <clears> 22. <throat> In reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, or the old man, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts and deceit, and you being renewed in the spirit of your mind, verse 24, and put on the new self, which is in the likeness of God, has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. The old man's gone, the new man's put on. Turn over one more book. Uh, Two books. Colossians. Colossians chapter 3. Verse 1. Therefore, if you've been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on the earth. Why? For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you will be revealed with him in glory. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, greed, which amounts to idolatry. Why? Verse 6. For because of these things, the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. Verse 7. And in them you also once walked when you were living in them. Past tense. Right? In them... You also once walked when you were living in them, past tense, verse 8, but now present tense. But now you also put them aside, put them all aside, anger, wrath, malice, slander, abusive speech from your mouth. Verse 9, do not lie to one another. Here's the reason. Do not lie to one another since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices and have put on the new self who is being renewed into a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. Right the old man the old self the unregenerate Adam man who he once were in Adam is gone right now go back to Romans 6 look at verse 6 what does our text say about this guy this old self this old man Romans six six, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him. What does that mean? Our old self was crucified. Our old man was crucified with Christ. Well, what does it mean to be crucified? It means you are dead. Right? You're dead. Killed. Your old man was killed. No longer alive. Our old self, our old man was crucified with Christ. Who we used to be in Adam no longer exists. Crucified with Christ. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones says this, We are not told that the old man has crucified himself, but that he was crucified together with the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm going to say that again. Right? We are not told that the old man has crucified himself, but that he was crucified together with the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, the old man is the man I was in Adam, my old humanity. The man that I was born under the law, or the man that was born of the law, born in sin, born under condemnation. The man that sinned with Adam and therefore reaped all the consequences of Adam's sin. The man who was under the wrath and condemnation of God. That man died with Christ. That man was crucified with him. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in in Christ Jesus. And he asked, why? Because I am no longer that man. I am a new man in Christ. Jesus Christ is the first born among many brethren, right? He is the head of a new race, and I am a member of his new race, end quote. That's a tremendous statement. The old me is gone. and You didn't even have to do it. God did it for you. Gone, dead, crucified with Christ. Now, to put off the old man simply means you stop living like who you once were. That old man has died, right? You stop living like you once were because he's not there anymore. He's died. He's no longer there. And you put on the new man... Means that you put on the the uh, you need to live like you are now who you are you be who you are now in Christ that's what he's saying put off and put on knowing this that in Christ our old self was crucified with him right now I'm going to stop for a moment and say look he's not teaching like some people teach there's two competing natures in the hearts and minds of men uh, uh, for the hearts and minds of men who are Christian right he, he's just making a statement of the fact he, he's not making uh, uh, some kind of comparison a false comparison. Between the old nature and the new nature, and sometimes you hear people talk about that, right? Yeah, we're we're, we're I'm, I'm saved in Christ, but I have an old nature. No, you don't. You have a new nature. Why is that? If you're paying attention, you'd have said because the old man was crucified. Didn't I just say that? How many times have I said that tonight, brother? A few. You need to pay attention. I'm giving you all the answers to the test right up front. Right? Crucified in Christ. There's not an old nature, new nature. There's not a little a little. Devil angel on one corner and you know, and a, uh, a, a nice angel on good. There's not that's craziness. That's not what the Bible teaches, right? Second Corinthians five seventeen. If any man is in Christ, he is a new creature. Got to start believing what the Bible says. Got to start living according to the revealed truth, right? If any man is in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things passed away. Behold, all things new have come. Right? I don't murder Christians anymore. Guess what? I love them. Right? I invite Right? Paul. Right. One modern commentator, Mar- or, uh, John MacArthur, says this: the dualistic idea, right? This good, good, good spirit, bad spirit, right? Uh, old man, old nature, new nature. This dualistic view that the Christian has two natures uses unbiblical terminology and can lead to the perception that is extremely discru- destructive of holy living. Some who hold to such views go to the perverted extreme of the Gnostics in Paul's day, claiming that because. Uh, Uh, because the evil self cannot be controlled or changed and because it is going to be destroyed in the future anyway, it doesn't much matter what you let it do. It's only quote-unquote spiritual things such as your thoughts and intentions that are of significance. He says therefore it's not surprising that in congregations where that philosophy reigns immoral conduct among its members as well as its leadership is common and church discipline is usually non-existent. Uh, you won't remember this, except if you're old and have gray hair like me. Remember Flip Wilson? And Flip Wilson played a character which isn't even funny anymore. He used to dress up in drag, which isn't even a term that you can use anymore because everybody doesn't purp on purpose. <clears throat> but he was doing it because he thought it was funny, and it was funny. He used to dress up like his sister, Geraldine. He doesn't have a sister named Geraldine. He was a comedian, and he used to always say, it's not my fault the devil made me do it when he was dressed up like Geraldine. right? And there's a whole lot of people that say, it's not my fault it was my flesh. No, your flesh may be causing you problems, but you don't have to do that because you're a new man in Christ, right? You're different. You've been freed. I'm talking about your emancipation. What did I say the What did I say the title of the sermon was? Freed from sin. I'm talking about uh, I'm talking about a room full of people who should be jumping up and down, shouting hallelujah, because you're hearing tremendously freeing truth, biblical truth. You know my feelings. I'll get to your feelings in a moment. I don't care about your feelings. I don't care about my feelings. All I care about is truth. What does the truth say? Right? We don't have this old nature dualistic idea, new nature. We have a new nature in Christ. And what does Paul says? Knowing this, verse 6, that in Christ our old self, the old man in Adam, was crucified. Again, going back just in your mind to that Ephesians 4 passage, right? Ephesians 4.22, in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit, and you being renewed in the spirit of your mind, get your mind... Instructed by biblical truth, not your feelings, right? You being renewed in the spirit of your mind, verse twenty four, you put on the new self, which is in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. So lay aside and put on. Right? Do you know what both of those are in the Greek? They're infinitives. They're the they're technically called infinitives of result. What does that mean? Paul's not giving a command, is what it means. It's not a command, it's not an admonition. It's not an imperative, it's just absolutely a statement of fact about what has already been accomplished for you in Christ. You have put it off, now put it on. Because you're no longer who you used to be. The old man has been crucified. Right? He says, look, this is a statement of result. You laid aside the old and you put on the new. It is an infinitive result. This is the way things are. This is reality. This is who you now are in Christ if you are saved. Knowing this, again, verse 6, that in Christ the old self is dead, crucified, and you put on the new self, which is in the likeness of Christ, in God's own likeness, right? Been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth, as it says in Ephesians 4.24. Statement of reality. Okay, now I'll get to your feelings. Because it's really nothing more than feelings. We like our feelings, right? I, I don't feel that way. Okay? doesn't matter what you feel. doesn't matter what I feel. I don't feel like my old self is dead. Well, the truth is, objective truth, biblical truth, doctrinal truth, is the old self is dead. Your feelings are irrelevant. Might be, just perhaps, might be time to inform your feelings of what the truth is. And maybe your feelings ought not to lead your life, and maybe biblical truth might ought to lead your life. Just a suggestion. Paul is dealing with doctrinal truth. And again, so far, I haven't read one thing that he's asked us to do. Go do this. Count some beads. Say some. No, he doesn't say anything. He just says, believe this is true. Uh, in the Greek, these are all called indicatives, statement of facts. There's no imperative here yet, just statement of facts. And it's tremendous. Knowing this, that in Christ, our old self was crucified with him. Past tense, it's aorist, completed act, was crucified. Eris passive, indicative. Again, statement of fact, historical fact, completed in the past. It's in the middle, the passive voice, which means you had nothing to do with it. I have nothing to do with it. And again, the indicative just says, again, it's a statement of fact. Our old self was crucified with Christ. I mean, that's tremendous truth. That is jump up and down, shout hallelujah kind of truth. That's glorious truth. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him. So don't let the devil or anybody else come along and fool you. And stop lying to yourself that you're still an Adam. You got this good thing, bad thing going on, you know. No, that's not the issue. You're free. Slaves emancipated by Lincoln have to live like freemen. Slaves to sin emancipated by the great Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, have to live like freed men. Right? Freedmen. I did not say sinlessly perfect, but I said freed. You can stay in the prison cell. The door's wide open. You can walk out if you want your freedom because Christ has provided for you, for, for you, right? Freedom from sin, freedom from that old life, freedom from the domination of that old life and Adam, and, and Adam, right? The Christian is one in Christ. The old man's gone, dead, buried, crucified. Now, the only way to start... Or the only way to stop living like he's still around is, verse 6, know this. <laughs> Just know it. That our old self was crucified with Christ. Realize it's true. Understand who you are now in Christ. Remember I said chapter 5 was to talk about how much uh, Adam screwed up the entire human race, how much he brought it down, right? And people go, oh, I don't, I don't think it's fair. I don't think it's fair that I'm responsible for Adam's sin. I wasn't even there, and why am I lumped into that, you know, wages of sin and all yeah, well, it's not fair that Adam, what Adam did, but it's certainly not fair that Christ has lifted you up and given you so much more than whatever Adam did for the demise of the human race, right? It's not fair. It's grace, it's God's kindness. This is resurrection to life. Martin Lloyd Jones again says the only way to stop living as if he, the old man, were still there is to realize he's not there. That's the New Testament. He says that's the New Testament method of teaching sanctification. The whole trouble with us, says the New Testament, is that we do not realize what we are. What we still go on thinking, we are the old man, and go on trying to do something to the old man that has been done. The old man was crucified with Christ. He is non-existent. He is no longer there. If you're a Christian, the man may, that uh, you were in Adam has gone out of existence. He has no reality at all. You are in Christ. And if we but saw as we should... We should really begin to live as Christians in this world. We would all hold up our heads. We would be able to defy sin and Satan. We would rejoice in Christ Jesus as we ought. And Paul says we ought to know this. We ought to know this reality. I mean, again, it's a tremendous a, 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 a tremendous statement. This is who you are. Old man's dead, new in Christ, freed from sin. I don't have to be into that realm of dominion. I don't have to be dominated by my past lifestyle. I can stand I can stand up and say no. Pretty strong. Not me, but Christ, right? Mm-hmm. I can say no. Right? So the first statement that Paul makes in kind of protecting a believer from believing this false dualistic view of the competing old nature, and new nature is our old self is crucified, right? It's true. It's already happened. Already been removed, right, from the presence and control of the old self. Not only that, the apostle goes on and says this secondly, You can be certain that this dualistic view of the old man and new, or the old and the new nature is, uh, incorrect because of what he says next. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him, then he says, why, or why, in order that, in our body of sin, that our body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. What does it mean in order that your body of sin might be done away with? What does your body of sin mean? Okay, this is going to be, I'll go slow so you can write this one down. It simply means your body that you sin with. Your body of sin, the body you sin with, right? You have a body, you sin with that body. Our literal physical body, which has taken possession, or sin took possession of that. Sin used it as an instrument of evil and unrighteousness. When Adam sinned, sin dominated him. He had a complete mastery over him, right? His body, his mind, his spirit. And that's still true of every person who is in Adam. They are dominated by his body of sin, by the sinful propensities of that life controlled by Adam, that life controlled under sin, that life controlled under death, that that body of sin carries out sin in the members of his body. But remember Ephesians 2, 1, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Ephesians 2, verse 3, among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. That's who we used to be. That's the life of of the unsaved man in the world now, the man who's in Adam, but that's who we used to be. no longer in that world. Again, Colossians 3.5 Consider the members of your earthly body as dead. Dead to immorality, impurity, passions, evil desire, greed, which amounts to idolatry. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience, and in them you also once walked. Past tense. Right? In them you also once walked when you were living in them. Past tense. Not now. Not for the Christian. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with. Now that phrase done away with means destroyed, annihilated, rendered inoperative, invalid. To make something uh, uh, ineffective by removing the power of control. And when he uses that phrase might be, it's simply a statement of fact. It's a statement of reality. Again, there's no um, hint of impossibility Sin that sin that has been crucified, right? Sin that is dead is obviously done away with. So he's saying, look, you have a completely different person, a completely different uh, relationship again to sin, and, and so does your body you have a completely different relationship to sin. Knowing this, that in Christ our old self, who we were in Adam, was crucified with Him, in order that our body of sin, the instruments that we used to use for unrighteousness, might be done away with, or rendered inoperative, removed from a position of power, a position of control. Right, so the Christian united in Christ, died with Christ, buried with Christ, risen with Christ, seated in the heavenlies with Christ. For the Christian, he's no longer with Adam; Adam's gone. The Christian's finished with that realm of sin and death. has no longer anything to do with it. In Christ, he is a new creation, and he's basically saying, "Live like it. Look like it. You've been set free." You are emancipated. Right? That's the reality of all of us who are in Christ. In order that the old man's been crucified, in order that our body of sin might be done away with, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. Again, verse 7, the reason for he who died is freed from sin. And I kind of alluded to it earlier, but basically he's saying, look, for the first time in Christ, you and I have the possibility of obeying God. We the possibility of obeying God and saying no to sin. Before we became united with Christ, when we were in Adam, all we did was sin and sin and sin and sin and sin. Mm -hmm. Couldn't couldn't stop it. Sin had power over us. Sin had control of us. Sin took uh, control of the members of our body, our mind, and, and encouraged us to do those things that are not proper and right. But you're no longer a slave to sin. Because he who has died is freed from sin. Right In Christ, our old self is crucified the results of that old self being crucified, that old self being dead, the results are going to be that your body of sin might be done away with, right? Rendered useless, powerless, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. Again, that's freedom. Verse 7, for he who has died is freed from sin. Uh, Again, a man in Adam is a slave to sin, and a slave to sin, but a man who's in Christ is no longer a slave to sin. No longer a slave to sin and a bond slave to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, he's going to develop it further. And I just want to show it to you. I'm just going to run over top of it very quick. But look down there again at verse 11. Right? So, so Lincoln has just said the slaves are free. Right? In the analogy. They've got to leave. They've got to stop living as slaves. They've got to leave as freedmen. Verse 11, Romans 6. After everything that's been said. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Verse 12, Therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal body, so as to obey its lust. Do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who are alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. Verse 14, For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law but grace. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under law, but under grace? may it never be? Do you not know that when you present yourself to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves to the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or obedience resulting in righteousness. Verse 17. "But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the point of heart, from obedient from the heart to that form of teaching which you were committed. Having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. Again, it's positional truth, right? So again, somebody in the back, not in the back, because last time I said that, somebody got upset with me because they're sitting in the back row. So somebody is sitting over here in the front row, right? Says, that's not true of me. I still struggle with sin. I got it, right? I got it. We're still dealing with the flesh, right? We're still dealing with our unredeemed humanness, which will stay with us. that battle is going to go on Uh, until we're glorified. And guess what? The Apostle Paul is going to take up that issue in particular in chapter 7. But again, the issue is not your feelings. It's positional truth. What is true? The slaves are free. They need to walk out the door. And it's freedom because you're united with Christ, right? And and again, the Apostle is not saying, if you do this, or; he's saying this is what has happened because of your Because of justification, but because of the fact that you're united with Christ, the one who's justified is in a vital, life-giving reunion or life-giving union with Christ. Knowing that our old self was crucified with Him, in order that our body of sin might be done away with, so that we would be no longer slaves of sin. For He who has died is freed from sin. Right? It's a battle with our flesh, but the reality is so wonderful. Positionally, true in Christ, delivered, freed from sin freed from sin's domination, right? Uh, there is a victory over who we used to be, and that victory comes at Calvary's cross, and positional truth before God, we're free. So we just have to live as freedmen. And our life is not sinless, but we certainly should be sinning less. We may not perfectly look like Christ, but we should each day be looking a little more like Christ. Each day there ought to be just a hint of a desire to Do things more and more Christ honoring. Not that our life has anything to do with our standing before God, because God's already declared us justified through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, not by our own efforts. But I think it's tremendously encouraging that we don't have to be slaves to sin, that we've been freed in Christ. True, positionally true. Live like it. Take your freedom and say, you know what? Sin, I'm not doing that anymore. I used to think I had to because there was this good guy back. No, I don't have to do that anymore. I'm a new creature in Christ. I'm done with it. Okay, I'm going to give you one word that you can say to sin and I'll be done. No. Right? I'm not doing it. You have that freedom in Christ if you take it. Father our God, thank you so much. What wonderful, wonderful truth. Freeing truth, liberating truth, Christ-honoring truth. Men like Newton, men like Saul of Tarsus, Men like the people at Corinth, men like us. All freed, all transformed, all changed, not by anything that we've done, not by our own effort. Only because of you. Only because of the newness of life you give us in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, freed from the dominion of sin, now united to your Son, our Savior. We love you and praise you and thank you for that truth. Thanks for a great day of worship. We're so thankful that you allow us to do this. And uh, we look forward to Friday when we come together again. In Christ's name, amen.